0: If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open up to John chapter 4. And if you have a, a bulletin, it looks something like this. You can pull that out as well. And there's some sermon notes you can follow along. I hope everyone got their water or whatever it is they're drinking this morning, because we're talking about thirsty and water and all kinds of stuff. And if you're not well hydrated this morning... I have a hunch your brain will be elsewhere and you will be longing for water. Um, So maybe God will teach you even through your lack of preparedness to have a beverage in here. Uh, We'll see. Let me ask you this. I've called this morning Jesus at the watering hole. Now, I want church to be an honest place. It ought to be an honest place when a bunch of Jesus followers, God followers, who is truth, get together together. There ought to be a lot of truth, right, in one place. And that's, that's hopefully what we want church to be. So I want to ask you a question. I want you to give the real answer, not like, gee, I think I know the answer to this, but we're in church, so it must be a different answer. But let me ask you this. When I mention a watering hole, what does that bring to mind? I want to just hear some answers from group participation. What's a watering hole bring to mind? A John Wayne movie. Life. Okay. A bar. Elephants. Elephants, Okay. We've got the whole spectrum. An oasis. Lion King. Desert. Desert. Okay. We've got Disney working. And this is amazing. You guys, you guys thought of like four more than I ever thought of. Okay. Um, it's all of those things, right? A watering hole. Um, and, and you guys touched on, on both kind of the, the literal water, watering hole, maybe more technical definition. You also touched on the, the more slang one, let's say, like I always thought of norm, you know, like that's what I think of sometimes when I think of the word watering hole. Some of you are like, what? Um, how about this? How about water cooler? If I just say the water cooler, what does that bring to mind? Just kinds of thoughts that brings to mind. What football? Football. Okay. Yeah, no work. no work. OK, yeah. Or avoiding work, maybe gossip. gossip OK, yeah, ice. ice, soda. OK, yeah. Um, I, I was at Bank of the West for about six years of my life working uh, most of the time as a bank teller. And it's kind of how I was, uh, I was able to go through college was to work at that job. And I learned about both watering holes and the water cooler at that job. That was probably my first real exposure to these two. Here's why. Next door to Bank of the West on Bascom Avenue is Alex's 49er Inn. Now, um, it's not a motel. It's more of a tavern or an establishment or whatever else you want to call it. And uh, bordering between Alex's 49er Inn and Bank of the West is an alleyway where I walked every day after parking in the back on my way to into the work. Now, I had wore a tie and wore slacks and, you know, every day to work. And as I'd walk through there, I would find people who have had too much to drink in the alleyway, uh, having all sorts of troubles. Uh, and I won't go any further than that. But um, we would also have you know, people who would come in and want to cash their check, which looked an awful lot like a deposit slip that they had just picked up on the way in. And I had to politely tell them we couldn't cash it at this time. It was an interesting place to work. That's the watering hole side of things. On the flip side, we had a water cooler that sat right in the back of the bank. And it kind of separated the teller line from the management line over here. And um, we were an incredibly slow branch. We got robbed a lot, so it kept things exciting. But we were so slow. And if you're like me, you'd rather have it be busy so you could just work and have time pass instead of sit there with hour after hour going by. And you're like, yippee, a customer, you know. So what you would do for exercise is you would walk down the teller line and go get a drink of water in the little paper Dixie cup, you know, and um, and you would li- linger there just a little bit. You know, your boss was right there, so you didn't linger too much, but you'd linger and, and sip water. So I got to learn about both watering holes and uh, water coolers time at the same time, quite intentionally. I put the words watering hole on the front of your bulletin this morning, but I put a picture of of a, uh, a some some water, you know, just some nice, fresh, clean water. And I wanted you to track with the idea of a water cooler and what goes on there. And the bottom line is, is that um, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to read about this woman at the well. And some of you who have maybe grown up in church, maybe read this story before. I hope that God opens up your eyes to something new here and instructs us and teaches us. I believe He has something here for every one of us. Gathering at. A watering hole, whether you're an animal or a person, uh, and gathering around the water cooler turns out it's not a new phenomenon. Uh, It was was in the the ancient days as well. It was in biblical times, as we're going to see. I do want to turn your attention to something in the bulletin this week. Starting last week, kind of for the new fall season, we've got something new for you, and if you flip your page over, here's the front of it. If you look on the back, I just want to direct your attention to a couple things. Each week there's going to be a line and there's going to be a little memory verse in there. Um, And I would just encourage you as a family, as an individual, uh, as roommates, however you're here, as an individual, whatever it is, uh, to memorize this verse each week. It's one verse a week that will either augment what we've been talking about or it will be lifted right out of the passage that we've been looking at in John, as is the case this week. And what's going to happen is, if you struggle with Scripture memory, like 90% of the people that I know, um, this will be short enough to give you a little victory. And what if all you did was start to memorize one verse a week of God's Word? One year of that, you've got 52 verses that the Holy Spirit now has in your life that He can draw from like a little library and just says, here, and He'll call verses to mind. He'll call Scriptures to mind. Our kids have John 3:36 memorized because that was in the bulletin last week. I didn't give you a heads up. But we just went around the table and I just said, look, by the end of the week, let's get this. And we just reviewed around the table. Very, very simple. We had someone spend the night last night and he memorized it. It was awesome. Uh, So just a real simple little family tool. Uh, it also gives what passage we're looking at next week. So for those of you who like to read ahead and like to do your own study or like to meditate a little bit and prepare your heart for worship, this is one of the ways you can do it. Maybe Saturday morning breakfast routine before chores is just to read the passage of what we'll be looking at in church the next day. Wouldn't that be kind of cool? So you'll kind of know where we're at in the scriptures the following week. And lastly, I have some questions. You can use them as a community group. You can use them individually for further study. Maybe some of you go, gosh, I don't own you know, a devotional book. I don't know where to read in the Scriptures. Just start working your way through some of these. I'm going to add Scriptures that we didn't look at. We'll, talk, we'll bring up topics and whatnot from the passage. I would challenge you this way too. Um, we are a priesthood of all believers, which means this. As the Holy Spirit residing in us, we have direct access to God. And you don't have to come through me to pray and talk to God. That's not what the Bible teaches. As a family unit, I, as the father of that household, am the family priest. And God has put on my shoulders the charge and responsibility to nurture and train up my family in the way they should go. Now, I was raised part of the time, my life's very confusing. But I was raised part of the time by a single mom. My my mom wasn't a Christian, but if my mom was a Christian and she was a single mom and dad wasn't in the picture, that burden of responsibility falls on her so she would now become the family priest. What happens when we get together collectively as a family is we are a bunch of smaller family units that love God and serve God and make Him the primary core center of all that we are. And when we come together, we now align ourselves, all of our individual family units, into a larger pod, into a larger family. What's really cool to think about is take that one step further. We are a part of a fellowship of believers in the Silicon Valley. I pray for a church every single week that meets at Branham High School on my way in as they're setting up for church. Because they're part of the body of Christ. Venture Christian Church is happening right now. They're a part of our family. We are a part of the South Bay Church with a capital C. And so, and so God's, God's designed it that way. It can be as big and collective or as small and individual as you want it. But I would challenge you in the bulletin with these questions. Be the family priest in your home. It's not up to your kids. It's not up to each individual. You are called to lead and you are charged to lead your home. And so, if you're like most people, you go, gosh, developing family devotions. That's one more area to feel guilty about. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. I don't want that. And I don't think that's honoring to God and God doesn't want that. But begin by taking steps and just here it is right in front of you. Here's some questions to start going over and it's, and it's prepared for you. Fair enough? Um, all right, let's get into the book. We have just a ton of ground to cover. This is such a great passage. Every week I want you to know there's so much uh, just there, and I really wrestle all often with just, God, what do you want me to share? What do you want me to leave out? I think I've got it. We'll see how it goes. Um, Here's just some background. We've been in the book of John. Remember, John's kind of painting a picture for us. John's a masterful author, and as you get to study him and look at how he uses words and whatnot, it's really brilliant. It's one of my favorite books in all of the Bible, actually. John is revealing who Jesus is by telling stories of him encountering different kinds of people. Now, just in the last chapter, we're in chapter 4 today, but in the previous chapter, the character that he introduced him to, or that we got to see him interact with, was Nicodemus. And Nicodemus and this woman at the well in some ways couldn't be more different. Uh, if, if, if you look at, at kind of how it all went down, Nicodemus was esteemed. He was Jewish. He was male. He was kind of part of the establishment. He was in. The woman that we're going to look at today is opposite in every one of those areas of who Nicodemus was. Now catch this. John even, John even points this out. Nicodemus' occurrence happened at night the one that we're looking at today, this, this, this woman at the well happens at high noon. John, in the book of 1 John, a little epistle he wrote, uses this light and dark immensely. And so there's, there's more to uncover here than we'll possibly unpack in the next half hour. I just want to, I want to kind of wet your whistle with that. Uh, let's just read, starting in chapter 4. And I'm going to read this story because it's it's a narrative. It's a story, really. And I'm going to read it out of a, a version of the Bible called The Message. It's going to look a little different, probably, than most of your Bibles uh, because it's a paraphrase. The guy that... Uh, did this he he thought man i want to have the bible so that my grandkids can understand it and i read the, this passage this week in this story and it just draw up some new language for me so maybe for some of you who've heard this story a bunch i don't want you to follow along and get tripped up on different language i want you just to listen just listen to this story and um, if you want to follow along you're obviously welcome to john chapter 4 verse 1 says this jesus realized that the pharisees were keeping count of the baptisms that he and John performed, although his disciples, not Jesus, did the actual baptizing. They had posted the score that Jesus was ahead, turning him and John into rivals in the eyes of the people. So Jesus left the Judean countryside and went back to Galilee. To get there, he had to pass through Samaria. He came into Sychar, a Samaritan village that bordered the field Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was still there. Jesus, worn out by the trip, sat down at the well. It was noon. A woman, a Samaritan, came to draw water. Jesus said, would you give me a drink of water? His disciples had gone to the village to buy food for lunch. The Samaritan woman, taken aback, asked, how come a Jew, uh, I'm sorry, asked, how come you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Jews in those days wouldn't be caught dead talking to Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the generosity of God and who I am, you would be asking me for a drink, and I would give you fresh living water. The woman said, Sir, you don't even have a bucket to draw with, and this well is deep. So how are you going to get this living water? Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob who dug this well and drank from it, he and his sons and livestock, and passed it down to us? Jesus said, Everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again and again. Anyone who drinks the water I give will never thirst. Not ever. The water I give will be an artisan spring within, gushing fountains of endless life. The woman said, Sir, Sir, Give me this water so I won't ever get thirsty, won't ever have to come back to this well again. He said, Go and call your husband and then come back. I have no husband, she said. That's put nicely. I have no husband. You've had five husbands and the man you're living with now isn't even your husband. You spoke the truth there, sure enough. Oh, so you're a prophet. Well, tell me this. Our ancestors worshiped God at this mountain, but you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place for worship, right? Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you Samaritans will worship the Father neither here at this mountain nor there in Jerusalem. You worship guessing in the dark. We Jews worship in the clear light of day. God's way of salvation is made available through the Jews. But the time is coming. It has, in fact, come. When you were called when what you were called will not matter and where you go to worship will not matter. It's who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is looking out for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before Him in their worship. God is sheer being itself, spirit Those who worship Him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves in adoration. The woman said, I don't know about that. I do know that the Messiah is coming. When He arrives, we'll get the whole story. I am He, Jesus said. You don't have to wait any longer or look any further. God, I pray this morning that You would open our hearts and open our ears to understand clearly, and to have the courage to follow where you lead us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Sometimes it's good to read in different translations. It doesn't have to be the message, but it's good to see the Scriptures in different words. I want to point out a couple of things before we get to our outline this morning. The first being this. If you look in your, in your Bible, it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And the reality is that that's not really true. In fact, most Jews, if they were traveling, would make an absolute point of going around the region of Samaria. It's like a neighborhood or a part of the country that they say, we're so disgusted by the half people of Samaria and we're so much better than them that we won't even step foot in their country and we will go around them. It was a disgrace and it was a a, a point that people made. So Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria to get to where he was going. In fact, if he was a typical Jew, he would have gone around it. And I would look at that and say, maybe, maybe Jesus needing to or, or had to, maybe it wasn't a geological had to, like to get from point A to point B. Maybe it was a, a moral or a spiritual had to. Maybe Jesus really did have to go through Samaria. And part of that was just to say, my, my disciples need to learn a lesson. We've got to go to Samaria to learn this lesson. I think that, that may be what's going on. Wells are interesting. And I want to just turn your attention to the thought of a well for for a moment. We're so spoiled, aren't we? We just turn on the water and, and we just flush our toilet. And if we want to wash, we just turn on the bath or the shower. And we just water things in our yard. And we hardly think about the fact that an abundance of water is coming through. And yet in cultures all over the world today... There are people who are struggling to live because they don't have a clean source of water to drink from. The whole idea of a well is interesting. Did did John just bring this up because that happened to be where the story took place or is there a little bit something deeper here? And I think there is something deeper. I think John's using this and exploiting the fact that this did take place around a well. Wells in this day and age were the one locale where women could either be avoided or met. Because, you see, it was the woman's job, it was her duty, it was her chore to go to the well each day to draw water and to get water. And if you wanted to avoid being around women, well, you wouldn't go to the well. If you wanted to find a woman, you'd go to the well. You don't have to turn to these. Just write these down. Genesis 24, Abraham's servant looking for a wife for Isaac. Where does he go? He goes and finds the local well, right? And there he meets this woman named Rebecca. Beautiful name. Uh, Exodus chapter 2. Moses fled Midian and met the daughters of Jethro at the local well. Guess what? He ends up meeting Zipporah and the rest is history. They met and became married later on from there. When John mentions a well, and then in the story, marriage comes up. The topic of marriage comes up. For us, as I just read that, most of you didn't make any connection. No bells went off. No whistles went off. No alarms went off. But to the Near Eastern ancient mind that's, that's first hearing this, that John's writing to, and they hear about a woman at a well at high noon, which we'll get to later, and the topic of marriage, they would immediately overlap that and understand the connection of that. They would, their, their minds would immediately jump there now, here's what's interesting is that Jesus decides to go and plop Himself right in the way of this woman. She's there to do her chores. He becomes an unavoidable obstacle to what she needs to get done. I have kind of as a subtitle this morning, building bridges by breaking barriers. And what Jesus did as He went around was He, was, he made a habit of breaking all kinds of barriers, all kinds of assumptions Lies that we've bought into that we think are just the norm, and they're not. And so Jesus says, not true. I'm going to step across that line. He got the looks and the gasps from all the people around him. And in doing so, he was building bridges with people, bridges of salvation. First of all, time of day. Let's get to that. Um, I've already mentioned the the, the chore of water was for women, but uh, women in this culture were fairly isolated. Men simply didn't talk to women. And so women uh, doing this chore weren't so bummed out about it. In fact, they kind of enjoyed getting together with other women and getting to catch up on how the day is going and whatnot. And it's kind of the early version of IMing each other, you know, and whatnot. But they'd go to the, to, to get water. And usually they would draw uh, in the early morning or in the late evening. Now, part of that was to avoid the intense heat of this climate. But a, but a big part of it was social. Probably an even bigger part of it was just social and, and going at those times. And so here's this woman who is at high noon. She's not going in the early mornings. She's not going late in the evenings. She's going probably at the one time of day. She's fairly convinced no other woman in her right mind would be caught dead at the well because that's the lousiest time to get this chore done. But she still had to get her chore done. Because I've read the entire story, we already know why. This woman is isolated. This woman has a reputation that has just been destroyed this woman is shamed. This woman is rejected. And this woman is alone. And that is where Jesus meets her. How about talking to a woman? A, a woman. Jesus speaking with a woman we're going to find out next week shocked the disciples. It's just a shocking thing to see. It's something you did not do. And Jesus not only talked to her, He engaged in her in a pretty deep conversation. Now as you read through the Gospels, jesus the, the way of Jesus' teaching was very unlike how we typically do it. If if I was more of a Jesus-style teacher, I'd say, pack up your things, and I'd walk out that door, and we'd go take a little field trip. And if I wanted to talk about water, we might do it at Almaden Lake or somewhere else. We'd go do it on the way, on the road, in the midst of a situation. If I'm talking about fields and dirt, I'd pick up dirt and just show you right then and there. That's how Jesus taught. And Jesus, again, I think He's on a little field trip through Samaria. And He's going to teach His disciples something. He was breaking down racial barriers. He was destroying assumptions. And he was certainly crossing gender lines. Jesus is male, single, religious, Jewish. And he's boldly, and in broad daylight at high noon, breaking tradition. Saying, this is going to be now okay. Here's something else that's interesting. Verse 26. This is the one time Jesus really kind of reveals himself. Did you see how at the end of that story, he clearly just said, I'm the Christ, the wait's over, the Christ is sitting right in front of you, this Messiah that's going to give you the whole story? Guess what? I'm the whole enchilada. Here I am. And he just reveals himself. He says it so plainly and so openly and so many times through the scripture. What is he keeps saying? My time has not yet come. Remember that? And he wouldn't reveal himself. And he would just keep parceling out truth a little bit at a time. Who does he choose to reveal himself to? I love it. The outcast. The woman. The notorious, bad reputation about town person. The Samaritan. When you package all of that together, it's staggering who gets this first kind of revelation clearly spoken. And I love that. A theme I want you just to think about as we think about water. If I took a giant bucket of water right now and I just threw it up in the air and it came running down uh, and I just started doing that over and over and we had lots of water. Let's just say our floor was, was tilted a little bit. Let's say our floor was like this. We would begin to see that water always flows to the lowest point. The next time your child, (laughs) this is for me as well, spills milk at the dinner table, the next time you see water pouring out of your hose into your flowers, trickling out of the little planter box onto the ground and through that dark crack, I want you to think about the fact that grace, like water, flows to the lowest point. Grace, like water, flows. Close to the lowest point. There is an abundance of grace for this woman. Not just a little trickle, an abundance of grace, perhaps where you or I would deem least deserving. And this is where we find Jesus more than enough for every thirst, for every need. I want to kind of offer you two outlines this morning. And on the front side of the outline, really, it's for the unconvinced. It's for the person sitting here who says, God, Jesus, church, not sure about it. I think there's some good points, got a ton of questions, not quite convinced He's Lord and Savior, and I'm not sure I'm really wanting to follow. On the back side, it's for the convinced, it's for the disciple of Jesus, and there are just a couple of things I think we need to learn as followers of God to conform into the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. So here we go. Point number one for the front side of it is this, that Jesus will. I'm going to give you three Jesus wills. These are promises. We see these laid out here, and we see this laid out in all over the place in Scripture, and we see this laid out in people's lives. Stories of people's lives where this is true. But Jesus will meet you where you are at. In fact, I would venture to say this. You actually can't avoid Him. C.S. Lewis coined this great phrase, the hound of heaven. And you can't throw the hound of heaven off your scent very easily. Talk to a Christian in this room today before you leave and just see how God chased them through life. You don't see it that way at the time, but when you look back on your life, you're like, man, God, You just wouldn't leave me alone. It's a chapter title or it's a book title, but it's called God's Annoying Love. I don't know who wrote it. I don't know when I read that. But that stuck with me. Because there's times where it's like you just go, leave me alone. Let me live my own little happy life. I don't want to think about that stuff that you're bringing to my mind and heart. But God won't do that. In fact, it's as if God has hardwired into each of us this sense of incompleteness without Jesus. And so until you have that, it's in Matrix language, it's the splinter in your mind. And you just go, man, I've arrived! Bummer. I didn't really want to be here. I guess I got it wrong. And so you begin climbing a different ladder only to find out it's leaned against the wrong house again. And so we're all in this search. And as you look at your, uh, your search, it, it, it reveals things. Someone said it this way, our search for love, for meaning, for happiness is often our search for God in disguise. And just begin to chart your life. Begin to think, why do I do that? Why do I always go back to that habit? Why do I always pursue that? Why do I even care what that person thinks? Because we think this, and that's a lie. If that person feels this way about me, if they give me that accolade, if they give me that praise, if I can achieve this, gain that, give that next to my name, I will achieve some sort of happiness and contentment. Our search for happiness is often our search for God in disguise. Check this out. In the midst of life, I mean humdrum, boring chores is where Jesus shows up in this woman's life. Take encouragement from that. I find great encouragement from that. Jesus shows up right in the middle of her mess. She's living with a guy right now, which then was a lot more shocking than it is now. He just didn't do that. She'd gone through several husbands before. She's in the middle of her mess. She's in at the well at high noon. Jesus shows up in the midst of chores. Don't you love that? It's not after a church service. It's not after she attended a revival for three nights in a row. It's not after she gave faithfully for a year, completed a baptism class, or did any of that stuff. He shows up before any of that takes place. And I find that thoroughly encouraging. Of all the people for the Son of God to bump into, it really shouldn't have been her. If you were to just take a survey about that town, and you said, who, who would the Messiah first talk to? It wouldn't be her. And there again, that's where Jesus shows up. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says this, But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for My power is made perfect in weakness. Maybe if you get the right lens on, you realize she is the exact right person in all of Samaria, perhaps, to bump into, to have a conversation with, to interact with. Now, here's the question that I hope is on your mind. What if Jesus wants to meet me in the middle of my mess? What if Jesus wants to dialogue with me and meet my needs right where I'm at right now and not the lie that I've believed that after I get my life cleaned up a little bit, after I take some of these shameful things and get them figured out and tucked away and just dealt with, after I lick this one last nagging habit, My power is made perfect in weakness. The power of an unchanged life doesn't get nearly as much press as the power of a changed life, does it? I'll give you a little preview for next week. Jesus is going to interact with this woman. This woman is going to go away, a changed woman, and yet completely unchanged. What you'll read is that none of the facts of her life have been altered in any way, shape, or form, and yet she's a completely different person. Here's what she does. She simply starts taking those first bumbling, stumbling steps of faith. She starts walking in the new life today, right now. And she's probably not very good at it probably breaks a few rules of our own on how to go about that. And I find that so refreshing to me that we can do that same way. Jesus meets us where we are at. Here's the second thing that you see from this, and it's true, and that is that Jesus will offer, not demand receptivity. If you ever exchange a gift with anyone, you recognize that always takes two people involved, doesn't it? I can offer a gift to someone, but if they stand there with their hands in their pocket and they will not receive the gift, then the gift exchange hasn't really gone down. It always involves two people. From the most basic thing of offering a wedding ring, and the girl says, uh uh, to offering a present, there's always two people involved in any kind of exchange that way. And you know what? Jesus plays that out time and time again. Where he offers. He offers it. He doesn't demand it. He doesn't grab the person and say, You're taking this gift. It's what you need. Open up. They're just shoving it down. He doesn't do that. He offers. I had a a little conversation right out here outside these doors before the welcome lunch got started last week. And this picture was modeled by one of our own family members. First time in church, at our church, anyways. He wanted to come meet me. We talked a little bit. And he said, Yeah, someone's been inviting me. And they've been persistent, but not forceful. And I told him, I said, Man, that's just like Jesus. That is exactly the way Jesus would invite someone. I'd like to throw out a, a term for you. Respectful urgency. Urgency. I think there ought to be a respectful urgency in every single believer that takes Jesus' call and mission seriously. Respectful because Jesus was respectful. He offered, never demanded. Respectful in that He met people where they were at. But forceful in the way that He didn't just kind of put a little teaser out, invite her to church. He said, no, I don't really do church. I'm not one of those people. Oh, okay, sorry, don't mean to bother you. I'll get my own water and walk away. He was persistent, wasn't he? He's the hound of heaven. So there's a respectful urgency that ought to take place in my life as well. Jesus knows that in order for her, this woman to get well, she has to get real. So he's talking about water and he's talking about some things up here and all of a sudden, you notice in the conversation, he's just like, all right, we're kicking it into a little bit of a different gear here. And he starts kicking into, i tell you what, before we go any further, go get your husband. And he just changes gears. And and as we talk to people, maybe you're really good about talking to people, but it's hard to ever really get to what needs to be talked about. In this case, this woman, it was men. Let's talk about the man in your life. And so the conversation shifts. He cuts to the heart of her longings. He cuts to the heart of... Her failures, He really cuts to the very heart of her needs. And that's the other thing I want to point out is this, that Jesus will meet all of your needs. Now again, I want to talk really uh, just practical here. I want some feedback. What are the needs of this woman? As far as we can tell from the text. Water. First and foremost, absolutely. What else? What? Dignity. Yeah. What else? Redemption. Salvation. okay. Friendship, maybe. A conversation. She's probably enjoying the conversation. You ought to bump into people once in a while on purpose and think, who is it in our culture, who is it in our society that doesn't just get looked in the eye and enjoy a conversation once in a while? For you moms at home with kids, I know that you are ministered to When a husband comes home, and guys, this is a clue in for us. When a husband comes home and offers and receives adult-level conversation after eight, nine hours of something different than adult-level conversation. And so offer that. Jesus will meet all of your needs. From the very basic, right, to water to, to the very deep and to the very, um, you, you know, kind of out there that maybe we don't even think about it. This woman stumbles on this metaphor. How can an outsider know about a spring here in Shechem that we don't know about? Where is it? You know, what's he talking about? The guy doesn't even have a bucket. She's, she's tripped up on kind of the surface level of things. Remember Nicodemus? What? Born again? How could that possibly do? I started doing algorithms He's like this is Impossible. And he got tripped up on the metaphor too. He, he couldn't see beyond two feet in front of him. You know what? Aren't we the same way sometimes? God didn't meet my need. Good night. I need some water. And Jesus is like, I'm giving you water. But it's so much more than the next half hour chore that you're talking about. It goes so much more beyond this week, this circumstance, I want to come in and really meet your needs. Jesus kind of takes her up to the edge and kind of gets her right to the edge and He's kind of like this and He gets her to look beyond, right? He gets her to look beyond what she can see from her own perspective. Jesus quenches thirst and leads to eternal life. That's all there is to it. She didn't see that quite yet. She thought, good, you've got water then, so I won't have to keep coming back here week after week, day after day, and doing my chores. It's still bigger. She still wasn't getting that. Jesus takes the perfect metaphor for this climate, water, and calls himself the living water. And then he moves on with the metaphor. You know what? The gift of Jesus is still misunderstood. I think that you and I, if we were to sit and just dialogue about this, we would say, here's what I thought was being offered in Jesus Christ until I grew and I understood what it was. Here's what maybe you thought he was. Maybe you thought he was a genie. You tried prayer kind of like a genie would, right? You kind of rub the Jesus lamp. And you're like, ah, it's just not working for me. Maybe you thought of Him as kind of the earthly father you never had and you left it right there in that kind of camp and never went any further. Maybe you view God as a buddy. Maybe you view Jesus as a very good listener, someone you can always talk to. Maybe you view God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit collectively as the charitable CEO who kind of runs the universe and kind of good-natured and you crawl up on his lap and once in a while get to ask for things. Maybe you think of him as an old man that winds up the universe and with glee sits back and watches it unwind. When people are offered the Gospel, when we hear about salvation, it's just so counter to what most of us immediately go to about what our needs are, about what we'd like to see happen, about what heaven is all about, about what we need. Life. Power. Faith. Forgiveness. Relationship. Guidance. I could go on. But the gift that Jesus offers is so oftentimes misunderstood. Now, she kind of does this little theological two-step to avoid where Jesus is going, right? I mean, did you catch that? There was a couple little chuckles here. Uh, I perceive that you're a prophet. (laughs) He just laid her open. He flayed her open and said, here, let's take a look at your spiritual life and what's really going on in your life. You've had many husbands. You're not so good at being a wife, evidently, and you choose bad men. Maybe that's kind of the message. And by the way, the one you're living with right now. And she just goes, I perceive that you're a prophet. And what does she do? She turns her ship towards kind of the safe waters of theological debate. Let's talk about worship and about little itsy bitsy two-step about, you know, where it's safe to worship and what's right to do and da 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 totally avoiding. What she needs most, right? Can't you just feel her heart rate just go like through the roof right there? Because she's like, man, if this guy had any clue who I was, there's no way he'd be sitting here talking to me. My sitting here talking to him would ruin his religious reputation in an instant in this town. He'd have to move on, this little traveling prophet. When Jesus says that, though, I think her, her eyes were opened on one level to go, ooh, that was pretty cool, in a way. And so let's talk about theology. Let's, let's argue about uh, worship style. That sounds safe. Let's talk about uh, offering and, and how this. And let's talk about nuances of our doctrinal statement. And let's get all sidetracked over to hear anything but deal with the heart issue. That I'm not submitted to God and I'm leading my own life. Jesus will meet all of your needs. Here's what Revelation 3.20 says. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Here's the message we preach at Neighborhood Bible Church. Come as you are. Come as you are. Don't clean up first before you come to Jesus. Good night. You'll never ever come. You just won't. The church is full of mostly nobodies, maybe a couple of somebodies, but together at the cross we find our identity, our purpose, our vision for why we're even alive, and the joy for heading into tomorrow together. So come as you are. But here's the second part of that that I think Jesus would appreciate. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. Come as you are says to a woman at the well, come Get involved in a dialogue with Jesus. But Jesus Himself leads her to where she needs to go. She can't just stay in that unhealthy state and expect to find the full life that Jesus offers. He wants to get in and heal and restore. And the first step in any restoration is to admit, yeah, it needs some changing going on. We need some cleanup happening here. We need some healing. We might even need some demolition to go on here. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. Flip your paper over, and I want to give you three quick things for the disciple of Jesus. Here they are. We all bump into so many people in our day in any given week. We interact with so many people. Here here it is. Meet people where they are at. That means get together, assemble on purpose, bump into, come across, Meet in the broadest sense of the word. If you're heading to Bible study and you come across another person, sometimes we miss the gift and the interaction that God is trying to use us in on the way to our meeting. We're on our way to Bible study, so we miss the journey to Bible study. We fly right past the guy on the side of the road with no gas. Maybe we fly right by opportunities for God to show His love and His kindness and the gospel to His people in this city. So meet people where they are at. Some of you go, it is really, really hard. Maybe it's easy for you, Dave, because you like to meet people. It's true, I like to meet people. But you know what? Even the shyest person can grow in their faith by doing this. You ever hear the phrase, you risk nothing, you gain nothing? You know what you gain by meeting new people? You gain new friends. You gain being used of God. Possibly even a step of faith for you, a growth point for you would be to say, God, this is way out of my comfort zone, but I'm going to go meet that person. I'm just going to go introduce myself. And they might slug me in the gut or they might shake my hand. Meet people where they're at. Here's, here's the second part of that. Where they are at just means this, that you will most likely have to adjust your time schedule, your likes, your preferences, and all of that. You know what that means? You'll have to sacrifice. You'll have to sacrifice. When you meet people where they are at, they don't want to come to your Bible study. They don't want to come be entertained by the things you're entertained with. They don't want to come... to to be with your friends who you're comfortable around. So that means you might need to go where your neighbor is and what they're entertained by. And I know there's a fine line with all of this, but you know what? We're not to fear the world. Jesus made it quite clear when He walked the earth. We don't need to fear walking around. Greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. So adjust your time. Adjust your places. Go be with people. Love on them. Serve them. Share the gospel with them. Also meeting people where they're at is this. I happen to know where Denver, Colorado is right now. And for people in this room, I could explain it. But if I'm talking to someone on the phone, I have to find out where they are at first before I point the way to Denver, Colorado. If they tell me they're in Texas, I I tell them head north, right? If I just tell people on the phone, yeah, you get to uh, Colorado, pretty much you head east. Jump on this freeway called Highway 80. You should get there. You don't find out where people are at and you're trying to point them to Jesus. You might just be speaking over their head or you might be pointing them in the wrong direction. Someone who's being healed from a religious past and you tell them it involved in a Bible study and you might be pointing them right down death. They're going to become a Pharisee all over again. Oh, I guess i got to do stuff. I guess I've got to get involved. Find out where people are at. Secondly, honor God's gift of choice. This whole call to make disciples, think about it more in the terms of ingredients make, like making cookies, versus make, like get in a headlock, read Bible verses make. Okay? Jesus very rarely, in fact I don't think He ever got someone in a headlock, He didn't make disciples that way. He made disciples by bringing ingredients together. He spoke the truth. He spoke the Word. He was with people. He served them and met their physical needs. Honor God's gift of choice. Jesus didn't find it necessary to argue people into the kingdom. Neither should we. Finally, trust God in the mundane and in the spectacular. Jesus can take drinking fountains, chores, bread, water, and take our gaze and lift it to the eternal. Get it past right what's in front of us and see eternity and learn gospel truth from it. God can work in the Gulf of New Orleans after a devastating hurricane in some miraculous ways. Guess what? He can work in a pretty simple rectangle building at 1302 Branham Lane. He can also work miracles around your dinner table if we're paying attention. God will work in the big and the spectacular Billy Graham and in the tiny mundane cubicle that you call prison. I mean, your job. So look for Him there. Disciple, find out. We're never off duty. I want to invite the band up. And as we do, I want you to keep this picture of grace flowing to the lowest point in mind. Bear with me and track with this story, okay? Little League Baseball can be a brutal sport, especially for 9- and 10-year-olds who are who who compete in national tournaments. It was the area Little League Championship game. The stands were packed with families of each of the players. One young man brought his mother and father, both grandparents and three uncles and aunts to watch him play. The bottom of the seventh inning was a nail-biter. The other team was ahead by one run. The bases were loaded, two outs, and the little boy with the large family was up at bat. Um, what's being passed out here? Well, oh, the worst of the song? This is very old school. I love it. <laughs> now we're getting cozy. We should put some candle lights on and go really old school. Um, all right, little boy is up to bat. If he made it out, the game would be over and his team would lose. If he walked or hit the ball, he would be the hero of the game. He swung at the first pitch and missed. Strike one, the umpire yelled. The families from the other team cheered, but his family cheered even louder. It's okay, Carl. No problem. You almost hit the ball. Now clobber the next pitch. Strike two! The umpire yelled after the next pitch. Pandemonium broke out. Both teams and their families were yelling back and forth at each other. Carl's family and team were encouraging him. The players and families from the defensive team were taunting. No one could hear themselves think. Wrinkles appeared on the nine-year-old's forehead as he waited for the next pitch. As the ball left the pitcher's hand, it became very quiet. The ball sped toward Carl. It seemed like it took forever to cross the plate, but crossed the plate it did, and Carl swung with all his might. Strike three! You're out! Not only was Carl out, the game was over, and he was the cause of the loss. The winning team went crazy. Their families swarmed onto the field and everyone was dancing, laughing, cheering, and celebrating. Except Carl's team. As Carl's team walked off the field, dejected, they mingled with their families and headed back to their cars in silence. Except for Carl. Carl was still standing at the plate. Devastated. Alone. His head down in disgrace. Suddenly, someone yelled, Okay, Carl, play ball! Startled, Carl looked up to see his family spread out over the field. Grandpa was pitching. Dad was catching. Mom was at first base. Uncle David was at second. And the rest of the family had covered the other positions. Come on, Carl, pick up the bat. Grandpa's pitching. Bewildered, Carl slowly picked up the bat and swung at Grandpa's first pitch. He missed. And he missed the next six pitches as well. But on the seventh pitch, determined to get a hit, Carl smacked the ball into left field. His aunt ran and picked up the ball and threw it to first base in plenty of time, but the first baseman, Mom, must have lost the ball in the sun because it went right through her hands and into the dugout. Run! Everyone yelled. As Carl was running to second, the first baseman recovered the ball and threw it. Amazingly, Uncle David, blinded by the sun as well, dropped it. Keep running! Yelled someone. And Carl headed for third, where the throw went at least two feet over the head of the third baseman. Keep running, Carl! And Carl raced for home, running as hard as he had ever run. The ball was thrown with deadly accuracy as the catcher, blocking home plate, waited to tag him out. But just as Carl reached the home plate, the ball bounced in and out of the catcher's mitt, and Carl was safe at home. Before he knew what happened, Carl found himself being carried around on Uncle David's shoulders while the rest of the family crowded around, cheering Carl's name. One person who was watching this amazing event commented to a friend, I watched a little boy fall victim to a conspiracy of grace. Would you pray with me? Oh Jesus, we invite you afresh to this moment. We thank you... That the Father, the Son, and the Spirit conspired together to provide grace, to cheer us home. And Lord, in these next few moments, would you help us not to miss the gift of healing that you have for us? The gift of redemption that says those past string of failures can be made perfect, can be used for Your glory. God, we long for this to be true. We thank You that You meet us here in these moments. In the healing name of Jesus, Amen.